Welcome to Friars on the Farm Podcast. I'm Donovan, and come to me via Skype is Roy. How's recovery doing? Uh, recovery's doing good. Uh, we're going to have Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, on here in a minute. Uh, but I'm doing well. Every day seems to be getting better. Uh, Bob, before you come on, I just had hip replacement surgery at the tender age of 50. Um, I uh, And actually, the... The physical therapist came over at 4.30, and I'm like, I really, I have my podcast to do. I have all this stuff to do. Uh, and then she puts me through, you know, which would have been nothing any other day, but, like, just lifting my leg up and putting my leg down was, like, painful. Um, but it's getting better every day, and I'm getting healthier, and, uh, and I'm just blessed to be able to have that done. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're on the path to recovery. I am, and we want to introduce... Bob Kendrick, the it's an honor, really, it's an honor, and we were talking before on uh, before we came on live uh, that we wanted to have you on. But Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, joins us today. Happy birthday! Thank you, man. Thank you. You know, at this stage in the ball game, you're just happy to have one. <laughs> you know, all the celebration stuff is good, but you're just happy to have a birthday. And and, and for me, no greater gift than to actually reopen the Negro Leagues Museum today. So my birthday, of course, was on June 15th, and we reopened the museum on June 16th. And that was the absolute best gift that I could give myself or could be given to me, was to see people back in the museum breathing life into this story and, and getting an opportunity to learn about the history of the Negro Leagues. And that's what we're all about. So, um... No cake? Just like, congratulations, we're opening up tomorrow. Didn't, you know, the office didn't give you any food. You guys didn't have cake? No. Well, you know, my staff, my staff were, were great. They surprised me. They brought my favorite cake. You know, and I was just like, I'm a pound cake guy. Ah. I love a good pound cake. And so one of my staffers made the pound cake. Now, I don't need the pound cake, but this ain't about need. Right. Let's talk need now. <laughs> and so I enjoyed some pound cake and, you know, uh, it, it was very nice of them. They surprised me with some stuff. And so, but like I said, everyone was just so excited today to get the museum open. You know, I got a chance to actually spend my birthday in my second favorite place, or on my second play, favorite place, that's golf course. Yeah. So I played 36 yesterday. And I can tell you now, I am not in 36 home <laughs> Well, Roy's a resident golfer, so we'll we'll talk more about golf later on. But uh, <laughs> it's been a while since I walked 36. It's been a long time. So, how was the reception yesterday? Uh, today, Were, did you get a lot of traffic? We 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 got steady traffic, and you know, I was honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I had no real expectations. Because people are still a little bit squeamish yeah. as we're starting to get back out after this whole coronavirus situation. And as you probably know, we've been closed since March 14th. So we've oh, been wow. literally closed wow. for three months, man. And so it was just exciting. The The first person who showed up today, I, I said earlier today, it was like a publisher clearinghouse <laughs> moment for me. You know, I should have had the balloons released and the confetti come down because it was just great to see someone there at the museum and then others started to come and they bought stuff in the gift shop. So, you know, hearing that cash register ring, that was music to my yeah. ears. 
have you guys had to take some precautions? Um, yeah, you, know, you know, and we have. We're adhering to the guidelines issued by the city of Kansas City, the state of Missouri uh, Health Department. And so we had to modify our schedule. Because, you know, we operate in the same building as the American Jazz Museum. So there are two museums here oh, at ah. Historic 18th and Vine known as the museums at 18th and Vine. So the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the American Jazz Museum. And so our numbers are based on both of our capacity. Okay. And so we had to kind of put in some protocols so people can get into the building, we can track who's in the building, and then, of course, limited capacity for the number of people who can attend. And we, we broke the day down now into two sessions. We reduced our operating hours. So we used to be nine to six. Yeah. So now we're operating 10 to 5 yeah. and two sessions from 10 to 1 and from 2 to 5 with an hour for extra cleaning and yeah. sanitizing. While we don't mandate that our patrons wear masks, we certainly encourage them to do so. All of my team, particularly frontline team, yeah. are wearing masks. And, of course, there's the standard social distancing protocols that are in place and so but as far as the museum experience, pretty much uninterrupted. We did close down our main theater, which is known as the Grandstand Theater. It runs a 15-minute film every half hour, uh, narrated by the great voice of James Earl Jones. Oh. It, they were all stars. And so we did shut down the main theater. But other than that, it's your typical amazing Negro Leagues Baseball Museum experience. And for those who have been to the museum before, we've added some new trinkets. We opened up a brand new permanent exhibition known as Barrier Breakers. And, and the Barrier Breaker exhibit, guys, chronicles all of the players who broke their respective Major League teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson joining the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947 through Elijah Pumpsy Green, who would be the last to integrate with the Boston Red Sox in 1959. It took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player, which is also what allowed the Negro Leagues to continue to operate during the time that integration in our sport was taking place. Right. So, what can what can folks find when they go to the Negro Leagues Museum? Is it is it somewhere where you can just kind of wander around and check things out, or is there a program where you're you're kind of guided through and then given a, a space to walk around? We do both. It is set up to be a self guided tour because really we want you to come and fully immerse yourself in this experience, and it's a very nostalgic journey back in time. And so the way that we structured the museum, you basically entered into an old ballpark. You walk into an old ballpark, and first thing that you see is the field. And it's known as the Field of Legends. And the Field of Legends, guys, is one of the most amazing displays in any museum anywhere in the world. It is a mock baseball diamond that houses 10 of 12 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats. And the significance of the 10 and each of them are cast in position as if they were playing a game. Okay. And the significance of the 10 is that they represent 10 of the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted 
into the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. And then on the outside looking in, almost poetically, is the late, great Buck O'Neill, who is managing this great all-star team that we assembled. And, and so you walk in, you can see the field. And naturally, your instincts say, oh, man, I can't wait to get out there. Yeah. But we segregate you from the field. You see, we wanted our visitors, particularly my young audience, to at least remotely experience what segregation was like. So in the case of these great athletes, they knew full well that they were good enough to play in the major leagues. So close to it, yet so far from it. So from most vantage points in the museum, you can see the field, but can't get to it. Ah. And so the only way that you're allowed to take the field at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, you have to earn that right. And you do so by learning their story. And guys, I'm not kidding. By the time you bear witness to what these athletes had to endure just to play baseball in this country, yet there is this overwhelming feeling, a triumphant-like feeling of taking the field. And people, it's very emotional, it's very inspirational, but there's nothing sad about the story. And I think a lot of times people think they come here, going to come here, and they're going to be introduced to a very sad, somber kind of story, because as you both well know, this story is set against the backdrop of American segregation. Yeah. A horrible chapter in this country's history. Uh, but the story here is out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you, then I'll just create a league of mine. <laughs> and, and, and that's the premise for this wonderful yeah. story known as the Negro Leagues. And of course, those leagues were formed right here in Kansas City, right around the corner from where we operate, 100 years ago this year. Wow. Wow. So how, how real quick, because uh, I want to get into the good stuff. I want to get into the, <laughs> I want to get into the good stuff. Um, how can people support that the, the can't make it out to KC? Uh, how can they support the museum uh, in, in other ways? Are is there donations? Are there, oh, do you have online fundraisers or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, all of the above, man. And I can tell you this, during these dark days of coronavirus, when this museum was, was black, I mean, literally lights were out so many people have stepped up to the plate pun intended but uh with all sincerity and made contributions that have helped us sustain ourselves during this time of three months of closure and so if you are interested in becoming a member of our team or just wanting to make a contribution to support the negro leagues baseball museum please visit our website at nlbm.com and you can find various ways in which you can support. Okay. Of course, those contributions are tax deductible because we are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. And so, yeah, we encourage people to do so. And man, the generosity has been extended so well and so graciously from so many during this time that we're closed. And it literally just warms my heart that people lifted us up doing a very challenging time, not only for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, right. but for small businesses around this country. Right, right. So where did, 
we're a minor league podcast, so we got to qualify you. <laughs> but asking about the minor leagues, there were no Negro minor leagues. Where did the talent come from? Most of it came from, surprisingly, historically black colleges and universities. Yeah, and you had the Industrial League, which also served as a feeder system for the Negro Leagues. Willie Mays comes out of the Industrial League. And, and so, but primarily HBCUs. And so people are oftentimes surprised by this one particular fact. Over 40% of the athletes who played in the Negro Leagues had some level of college education. Less than 5% of those who were playing in the major leagues at that time had any college education for the simple reason that the major leagues didn't want you to go to college then. They didn't want you to be they, smart. <laughs> they got you out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then you work your way to the big league. Yeah. Well, the Negro Leagues didn't have that kind of sophisticated farm system. Farm system. So more oftentimes they trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities. They would play the black college baseball teams and then recruit a great deal of their workforce from those historically black colleges and universities. And so while many kind of perceive these athletes as being vagabonds, tramps, hobos, illiterate, Ill illiterate, the mindset was that they weren't smart enough to play in the major league. Right. Now, I don't know when you ever had to be a Rhodes Scholar to play <laughs> in the major league, but, you know, it was completely the opposite. They were likely more intellectual than their counterparts. And so Jackie Robinson walks into a dugout, fellas, he was likely the most intellectual being <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had gone to Pasadena College and UCLA. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure there was another Dodger that had stepped foot on a college campus. Yeah. And, and so it was interesting. And so part of the narrative is about breaking down those stereotypes and misnomers that so oftentimes people cling to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's interesting about that. But that's where a lot of their players came from. So that kind of goes into my next question. Did any other races play in, in the leagues? Or were there any uh, Cubans, uh, Dominicans? Oh, were yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, what I love about this story is its universal appeal. Because, put it quite frankly, the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. All they cared was can you play. Hmm? And, and that's all that matters. So you had Hispanic ballplayers playing in the Negro Leagues. You had times where there were white players who played in the Negro Leagues. You had women who played in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, so this league refused to treat others the way that it was being treated. And, and that's what I think people walk away and, and they are surprised by the inclusive nature. And, and there was this great bond between the Negro Leagues and Spanish-speaking countries. So you also have to remember that the Negro Leagues were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Uh -huh. And when they went there, they were treated like heroes. So they're staying in the finest hotels. They're eating in the finest restaurants that those countries had to, had to offer. Come back home and you treat it like a second-class yeah. citizen. Yeah. So as a result, a lot of Negro League players would call those Spanish-speaking countries home for one simple reason. You see, in those countries, they weren't black baseball players. 
They were just baseball, baseball players. players. That's all they ever wanted to be. Yeah. I uh, so go ahead, Roy. San Diego, we're Padres fans, obviously. Um, and the Padre, the Major League Baseball team has a connection to the AAA Pacific Coast League Padres that played here for years. And so when we look at the walls at Petco Park, we see pictures of players like Ted Williams. It wasn't. It was just recently that I learned that Minnie Minoso played for the San Diego Padres for a couple of years, and it made me wonder. We honor Ted Williams as our native son and somebody who came and played for the Padres for only one year, but we don't have anything up about Minnie Minoso, yeah. who was black Cuban, who was one of these ground these these breakthrough players that should be in the Hall of Fame, if you ask me. Is there anything about Minnie Minoso in your museum? Oh, yeah, man. Many played, of course, for the New York Cubans in the Negro Leagues, and he was a dear friend of mine. I, I miss him tremendously. You know, when many walked in the room, the room lit up. Yeah, it always did. The joy. And you see that joy with a lot of the Latin ball players. Uh, they just have that in, in them, and, and many possess that. Matter of fact, one of the last times I was with many uh, was at Ernie Banks' funeral. And within a month later, many had passed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and, and I agree wholeheartedly that Minnie Minoso should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Minnie Minoso was the Latino Jackie Robinson. Yeah, without question. You know, and, and so, yeah, I, I agree. And he was a dear friend. He plays an important role in this museum. We have a traveling exhibition that is called Negro Leagues Baseball, the Spanish spelling of the word baseball, baseball. that is dedicated to my friend, the late, great Minnie Minoso. And, and so, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Whether it was, you know, Minnie Minoso or big Luke Easter, who spent time out in San Diego, big power hitter, who uh, 6'4", 240, you know, he, he, he had the, the dubious distinction of trying to take the place of Josh Gibson. And, and Gibson had died, he subsequently died, he was sick and died from a brain tumor. And the Homestead Grays were looking for another big bat to put in that lineup. Well, you're not gonna feel Gibson's shoes, no. but Big Luke Easter did a pretty fat little He had power. And the Cleveland Indians would eventually bring him up, but he never got a fair chance. But he put up huge numbers in the minor league. Wow. Yeah, he really did. Uh, so tell me the truth. Is Cool Papa Bell really faster than light? And as Buck would say, he's even faster than that. <laughs> <laughs> Where did he get his nicknames? And this is what I love about so so what I get from movies and, and, and TV, you know, the today's American Major League Baseball game is so it's like shh, it's almost like, almost a little bit like golf. We're we're a little rowdy when someone hits the ball, but like in between pitches, it's really quiet. You got to pay attention. We're very we're studying the game, you know. But you go to these other countries like Latin America, the Dominican Republic. You go to the Asian countries. It's a celebration of the game in the stands, and almost the stands um, are almost a part of the game in and of itself because it's because they're so voice for us, and there's so there's so much fun going on. Um, were the were the teams like that? Were the games like that back then? Were they, were they? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. See, that was the thing about Negro Leagues baseball. When you went to a Negro League game, number one, you knew that you were going to be thoroughly entertained. 
So they embrace the entertainment value of what the game was all about. Now, you are going to see fundamentally sound play, but you are also going to see a showman. Again, as my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. So what other fun nicknames did they have in in the Negro League, some of these players, and, and how did they get them? Yeah, now, you know, I, honestly, if you didn't have a good nickname, you probably couldn't play. Ah. Yeah, yeah, the great guys all had great nicknames. And, 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 and when your nickname is so iconic that people think it's your real name, yeah. that's when it's special. When I tell people, Leroy, I say Leroy Page, people are saying, who? You know, because everybody knows him as Satchel. Satchel. Yeah, Satchel was his nickname. Or so how did, he, how did he get the name? Well, you know, there's been various variations <laughs> of this. So it doesn't matter which one you want to pick and choose as the right one. But the one that is more commonly accepted is that Satchel used to kind of work the train station. And, and you could carry the passenger's bag and, and they give you a tip. Well, Satchel being the ingenious an innovative individual that he was created a contraption that allowed him to carry more bags than the other kids. And they somebody said, you look like a satchel tree. <laughs> and the name stuck. Uh, you know, now, there have been other, other sides of this story, but that's the one that I commonly related. And, and, and of course, again, the name was just so iconic. No one knows him as Leroy, no. but everybody knows Satchel. The same thing with guys like Buck O'Neill. Well, his real name is John. Right. Yeah, but everybody knows Buck. Uh-huh. Or you get a guy like a Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. And, and the nickname Double Duty was given to him after the great sports writer Damon Runyon. Saw Duty catch a Satchel Page shutout in the first game of a doubleheader, pulled off the catcher's gear, took the mound, and threw a shutout in the second game of the doubleheader, said he was worth the price of two admissions. Man, he was double-duty Radcliffe until the day he died at 103 wow. in Chicago in 2005. Wow. And, and, of course, you mentioned the legendary Cool Papa Bell. Well, no one knows him as James. Man. His real name was James Bell. <laughs> and for me, Cool Papa is the greatest nickname in baseball history, bar none. Yeah. And the legend behind the nickname, he comes to the Negro Leagues as a pitcher, pitching for the St. Louis Stars. And he's in a, you know, a kind of a jam situation, uh, bases loaded situation, and he's facing the great Oscar Charleston whom Buck O'Neill would say without hesitation, the greatest baseball player he ever saw. Yeah. He thought Willie Mays to be the greatest major league. And most people concur. Because Mays could beat you everywhere in which yeah. you could be beat. He could beat you with his bat, with his arm, with his legs, with his glove. And, and of course, Mays' career started in the Negro Leagues with the Birmingham Black Baron. But Buck believed the greatest baseball player he ever saw was Oscar Charleston. Yeah, who could do it all. Well, Cool Papa is facing Oscar in a bases-loaded jam, and he gets him out. And, and somebody yelled out, 
that's one cool papa. And the name stuck. <laughs> but it, it fit cool to a T because cool was really cool. You know, a snazzy dresser didn't do, you know, didn't do the social ramblings or any of that stuff. Cool was literally cool. But cool could flat out run. And, and I can tell you now, you don't have to fictionalize the speed of Cool Papa Bell. Cool Papa Bell once stole 175 bases in what would be the equivalent to the, well, less than a 200-game season. Ugh. He twice scored from first base, honest to God's truth, on a bunt in exhibition games against Major League All-Stars. Yeah, <laughs> they, were playing, they were playing in Mexico. And, and Buck O'Neill says, Cool went from first to third so fast on a single <laughs> that the Mexican team stopped the game in protest. Right. They thought he was cheating. <laughs> they swore he had cut across the diamond. That no man could get around the bases that fast. Guys, how fast was Cool Papa Bell? The legendary Jesse Owens, who at that time was the fastest man in the world would never race Cool Papa Bell. Flat out refused <laughs> to race Cool Papa Bell. <laughs> okay, so that that kind of brings me to my next kind of brings me to my next question. So a lot of the um in the off season, a lot of the Negro Leagues did Barnstorm with the major league teams, right? Yeah, the Negro Leagues were heralded Barnstormers. And, and so the Major Leagues didn't do as much Barnstorming as the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues were very accustomed to it. See, they took baseball into Canada. They were often, as I mentioned, the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Well, believe it or not, it was a touring team of Negro Leaguers who introduced professional baseball to the Japanese, going all the way back to 1927. That is well before Babe Ruth and his All-Stars go to Japan. They've been commonly credited yep. with having taken professional baseball to the Japanese, but it's not true. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants, a barnstorming team of Negro Leaguers who would go to Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series. They go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would get invited over. And I always preface that with my visitors, because as you guys know, as you look at this game today, in its global capacity. There are so many ethnicities that make up a major league roster yeah. on any given day. Well, at the heart of it were the Negro Leagues. They helped make the game the global game that it is today. Right. Uh huh. But you're right. They would barnstorm against major leaguers. And the record books bear out that the Negro League or black all-star teams won the majority of those head-to-head -head matchups almost 75%. So it was never any doubt about their ability right. to play in the major leagues. It was simply the social conditions of our time and fear. And fear plays a prevalent role in keeping these guys out because I don't think the superstar major leaguer was concerned about integration. Oh, but that average major leaguer right. was absolutely concerned because I might lose my job. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the great Ted Williams, uh huh, who was a San Diego native, 
And, it, and, and, and guys, if you are going to point to one single individual that was responsible for getting Negro Leaguers into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, it was the great Ted Williams. See, what, what a lot of people did not know that number one, Ted Williams, was of, of Hispanic descent. His mother. Was his Mexican. mother. Yeah, his mother. Yeah. See, a lot of people didn't know that. And Ted had played with and against these players. So he knew that they could play. And it would be Ted Williams who would use his own induction ceremony uh -huh, in 1966, who stood on that platform and advocated for the likes of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame as symbol of those great stars from the Negro League who had never been given an opportunity. Five years later, Satchel becomes the first from the Negro Leagues to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's all due to the great Ted Williams. So with all these super, with all these barnstorming games happening uh, and then the regular leagues, were there any major league players that were kind of, at the, at the time, speaking out against maybe trying to get these players in? Or was it just simply, I mean, is that a naive question to me to think that you know, back then, someone would speak up like a Babe Ruth, like a like a Ted Williams during playing days. You know, yeah. You know, I think what has validated the Negro Leagues in the eyes of a lot of people is when you hear those great major league stars say these wonderful things about how good these players were. Okay. You know, the Joe DiMaggio saying that Satchel was by far the fastest he ever tried to hit again, and when he got a hit off of Satchel, he knew he had rocked. And, and you hear the comparisons that Josh Gibson was the Black Babe Ruth or that Buck Leonard was, you know, Lou Gehrig. And, and, and so that's how people have drawn the parallels to help people understand how good these players in the Negro Leagues were by comparing, comparing them to their white counterparts. And, and so there were some who were a little bit more vocal than others. Honestly, Babe Ruth his affinity for black ball players likely cost him an opportunity to manage the New York Yankees. The Yankees were not very comfortable with how close he was to those Negro League players and the fact that he was advocating on their behalf. And it likely cost him an opportunity to manage. But there were others who knew that these guys could play. You know, Walter Johnson said of Josh Gibson, if he, if he wasn't white, he would earn $200,000. He was yeah. that good. You know, and, and so you had that sentiment of the fact that guys knew that these guys could play. So let's talk about that for a minute. The the, the pay of the players, the, the economy surrounding the Negro Leagues. Um, obviously, they weren't paid the big money that, you know, the big stars were in of the day. But were they paid a pretty good money? Were they, was it, was it you yeah. know, were they paid good the, money? The superstar major leaguer could make a decent living. You know, uh, they never had to play year-round. But Satchel Page might have been the highest-paid player in the country because everybody wanted to see the old man <laughs> pitch. And, and, and he's filling up ballparks everywhere he went. And so the superstar guys who could go to Latin America and play winter ball, and, and in, in, in those countries, man, they were making more money than they were making yeah. in Negro League. Yeah. And so they weren't making as much money as their white counterparts. But athletes and entertainers have always made more money than us poor working class folks. They have always will. And, and so they were able to make a living playing the game that they love. 
and, and so, but you know, yeah, the big stars could earn a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the the economy around the ballparks, the the concessions, um, those are all black owned. Yeah, so there was a whole. You know, around any, like our ballpark here in San Diego was a very blighted area until they brought the ballpark in, and that whole area was revitalized with businesses and and commerce. Uh, were the ballparks in these cities, was it the same, but kind of maybe black-owned companies? Was there a whole economy around? Or? That, was, that was probably where the fundamental difference comes between the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball. I tell people about the quality of play, no different. Hmm. Yeah, the athlete, no different. But the funding, the financing was different. Yeah, the major leaguers were better. The major leagues were better funded. They had their own stadiums. The Negro Leagues, by by and large, did not have their own stadiums. Okay. There were only a handful of teams that actually had their own stadium. You know, you had a stadium in Memphis. The Memphis Red Sox had their own stadium. You had a stadium in St. Louis. The St. Louis Stars eventually had Stars Park in Pittsburgh Greenleaf Field. But that was not the norm. So they were renting the ballpark from many major league teams. So they're filling up major league ballparks. Yeah. But that's also one of the reasons that it took so long to integrate the game. There were major league teams who were making money right. off the Negro League. So they had no hurry to see the Negro Leagues go out uh, of business. That's a revenue stream. Absolutely. It's a revenue stream. And not only were they getting a percentage of the gate, they were getting likely all of that concession that we talked yeah. about. Yeah. So in D.C., they're playing at Griffith Stadium. The Homestead Grays are outdrawing the Washington Senators. So while Clark Griffith flirted with the notion of trying to sign Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson well before Branch Rickey made the move to sign Jackie Robinson, he's in an interesting juxtaposition because I think he realized that if I sign Leonard and Gibson, two future Hall of Famers, and trust me, he is watching Josh Gibson hit balls where no mere mortal had ever <laughs> hit them. So if I sign these guys, my senators instantly move to the forefront of pennant contention and likely have a chance to win a World Series. I mean, Gibson and Leonard were that good. But the flip side of it is, the Homestead Grays are outdrawing the Washington Senators. So, and, and I think the owners understood the realization is once we sign a black ball player, that's it for the Negro Leagues. Because now the doors are going to open and it's going to absolutely kill the Negro Leagues. And they're right. And that, that's, just a, that's exactly what ultimately happened. And so he got the balance now. Number one, do I really want to fight with these other owners? Right. Risk being ostracized by these other owners. And do I want to cut off this source of revenue that I'm generating for my team? He opted not to. (laughs) (laughs) So, so so earlier you mentioned that women played in the, in the Negro leagues and you've mentioned Satchel Paige's name. I hear Satchel taught a curveball to a young lady named Peanut Johnson. Maybe Peanut Johnson. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about her? Peanut was one of three, one of the three women who played in the Negro Leagues: Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. All three were pioneers, and all three competed with and against the men in the Negro Leagues in the 1950s. As a matter of fact, guys, Tony Stone, who was the first female 
of professional baseball, she took the roster place of somebody you might have heard his name before. The great Henry Aaron. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the Braves had signed Henry Aaron away in 1952. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, the Boston Braves had signed Henry Aaron away from the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952, his long season in the Negro Leagues, and they the Clowns filled his roster spot, spot with Tony Stone. And then the Clowns eventually signed Mamie Johnson and then Connie Morgan. All three were superly, super talented and gifted athletes. Mamie Johnson was a pitcher, and, and, and she credits Satchel with teaching her, you know, the grip on the curveball and not to grip it too tight. Now, Satchel's curveball, as Bunk would say, really wasn't his best pitch. His best pitch was the dominating fastball and a great changeup. Yes, curveball was really more for show. And yeah, it really was. He called it, it was, it was, what were the name of his pitches? His pitches weren't the fastball well, he, curveball. It was a dipty do. Satchel had so many names for his pitches. Yeah, Satchel had, he named all of his pitches. So, you know, he had the, the Midnight Creeper, he had the Bat Dodger, Two <laughs> Hopper, you know, all these different names, the Dipsy Doom, uh, and he had one that he called his B-Ball. And, and you know why he called it the B-Ball? Because he says, it bees where I want it to be, and I want it to be there. And, and so he was, was amazing, but Bucks said he had three pitches. Even though he had names for all of them, <laughs> he had three pitches. That great fastball. I mean, dominating fastball. See, Major League didn't get the real Satchel Page. Right. No. They didn't get the Satchel Page that could get it up there at 105. No. But when I tell people that he didn't throw as hard as he did in the Negro League, that's comparing Satchel to Satchel. Right. That's not comparing Satchel to the average guy <laughs> because by the time he gets to the Major League, he still may have been in the low 90s, which most folks would be jumping for joy. But the pinpoint control, he never lost that. No, he never lost that. So, yeah, now he, by the time he gets to the major leagues, he's getting you out with guts and guile for the most part, craftiness, you know, but he had to spot on accuracy. Yeah, he never lost that. When I tell people that as a young man, he could knock a bird off of a power line with a rock. Yeah, that's God given there, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and when he warmed up in the bullpen, he didn't warm up throwing across home plate to the catcher. He would use a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper. The catcher would sit the chewing gum wrapper on top of home plate, and wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper, satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper. I mean, the control was in. You know, and you hear a lot of those stories where Tony Gwynn used to hit figs in the backyard with a broomstick. Like the eye hand yes. coordination yes. Is, is when you go to the extreme, even as a guy who plays like regular adult rec league, you know, when you put the teacher to the extreme inside, you're working that extreme. Or when you're working the outside, you, those extremes hone the skill. Yeah. No, Henry Aaron, Henry Aaron grew up hitting bottle cap. That's it. Yeah. With a broomstick. Yeah. And so Satchel, and, and Satchel, no one believed in Satchel Page's ability 
more than Satchel Pay. <laughs> and, and so Satchel said when he had a full count on about it, it was the hitter that was in trouble, not him. <laughs> so Satchel so, was really the Ricky Henderson of his day, really. And, oh, you know, he was he was the best self promoter. The Muhammad Ali of baseball <laughs> was Satchel Pay. No question about it. Or I should say that Muhammad Ali was the Satchel Pay of boxing. Yeah. He came before <laughs> So I pulled up a page here and about how, how to keep young. This is a famous quote of his. But at the top it says, I never threw an illegal pitch. The trouble is, once in a while, I toss one that ain't never been seen by this generation. <laughs> I love that. So his, his rules on how to keep young. Avoid fried meats, which angry up the blood. If your stomach disputes you, lie down and pacify it with cool thoughts. Keep the juices flowing by jangling around gently as you move go very light on the vices such as carrying on in society the social ramble ain't restful avoid running at all times and don't look back something might be gaining on you i, I, I love it yeah oh man and, you know the thing is we don't know how old Satchel really was right you know, major baseball says he was 42 when he joined the cleveland indians in 1948 as a rookie and, and you might recall that cleveland would win the world series in 1948 thanks to Satchel Paige and Larry Doby. Larry Doby, of course, would integrate the American League literally just weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League, and he's almost a forgotten man. It's really only been over the last decade that people have really started to pay proper respect to Larry Doby's yeah. pioneering role in baseball, but that's how we are in our society. Right. We always remember the first. Right. We never remember the second. No, which is why we built the Barrier Breaker exhibit, because we felt like those guys deserved to be more than just a footnote in baseball and American history. Well, Satchel and Doby helped lead Cleveland to win the World Series in 1948, which was Cleveland's, which was the last time Cleveland won the World Series, was 1948. And many thought Satchel should have been named Rookie of the Year. Right. He goes 6-1 with a 2.4 ERA his rookie season at age 42, which means he was likely closer to 52. Yeah. He never told his real age. As <laughs> Satchel would so whimsically pose the question, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Or that age is... <laughs> <laughs> He was a Yogi Bear before Yogi Bear. Well, <laughs> that age is simply mind over matter. If you don't mind, I don't... it don't matter. <laughs> and, and that is how he led his life. Uh, so as as so as the color barrier breaks in in the Major League Baseball, you know, it, it, baseball led the way there, but the the culture, the American culture, really lagged well behind. I mean, it's well documented on how poorly he was treated. We just had a novelist here a couple episodes back that uh, wrote um, a book on Brooklyn Dodgers that we had him talk specifically about um, about Jackie. Um, he, was, he wasn't the best player in the Negro Leagues at the time. He, he wasn't. It, for, for, for him, for, for Branch Rickey, I believe it was more about the temperament, the, the ability to not fight back when yeah. you're just being treated, I mean, if, if, if I, you know, I can imagine, I, I can't imagine. Hard, it's hard to imagine. And, and don't get me wrong, the first guy had to be able to play, you know, because if he can't play, the experiment is over. 
And, and the naysayers would have said, see, I told you they right. weren't good enough to play in this league. But the first player also had to have the intestinal fortitude to deal with the immense social pressure that was going to be put on that individual. And, and so you had to have somebody who could not only play, but somebody who could take the abuse. And, and Jackie, while he may not have been the best player in the Negro Leagues, he was absolutely the right player right. to be the first. And when I say that, that doesn't mean that there weren't other guys who could have possibly succeeded at being the first. But this is what we do know. The first guy cannot fail. Because right. if the first guy fails, there is no second guy. Right. And so that put an immense amount of pressure on Jackie. And I don't know if Jackie knew when he signed up for this that he was going to be literally carrying 21 million black folk on his back when he walked across those lines. Yeah, because had he failed, guys, an entire race of people would have failed. And that's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear in a game that is predicated on failure, yeah. he can't fail. Right. Yeah, you know this game is all about failure. You're going to fail more times than you succeed in this sport. If you get three hits every 10 trips to the plate, man, you're a Hall of Famer. Yeah, and, and he cannot fail. And as I tell my young audience when they come to the museum, he can't eat in the same restaurant as his teammates. Yeah, he can't stay in the same hotel as his teammates. Yet he's expected to walk across those lines and compete at a level equal or exceeding his teammates just to be there. And so we should never forget Jackie. No, no. But we also shouldn't forget the league that gave us Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Because had it not been for the Negro Leagues, you don't get Jackie Robinson. I'm surprised there's not more uh, cross-pollination with with the Negro League Baseball Museum. And, you know, I, you see it every once in a while, every every year, you know, the, the Reds will have the Grays or, you know, a team will wear a, wear a Negro League uh, uniform. But that's a, that's about it. You know, you see, I, I think, I remember being at, at Petco, I think Buck O'Neill showed up one, one year. Yeah. When, and, yeah. uh well, you know, and I was mentioning before we started recording that my good friend Dave Winfield, when he was a VP with the Padres organization, he organized the San Diego, San Diego Padres annual salute to the Negro Leagues. So for about a 10-year run, Dave was putting on one of the best salutes to the Negro Leagues in all of baseball. Now, you're right. There's still a handful of teams that still do them. We do one every year in Kansas City, naturally, with the right. Kansas City Royals. The Pittsburgh Pirates have been very good about celebrating their black baseball history. The Detroit Tigers, the Cleveland Indians have done them from time to time, Baltimore, St. Louis. So you get a smattering of that. But Dave put on one, and I think his was really significant because San Diego didn't have that same degree of Negro League history as we have here in Kansas City or as they have in Pittsburgh and Detroit. But he showed that even though you may not have the historical roots, it's okay to celebrate the heritage of our game. And man, I got to spend time out in San Diego with Monty Irving 
and Ernie Banks and Minnie Minoso. Uh, so many guys who have passed on now that came out to San Diego, you know, and, and Buck and I would go out there every year for Dave's salute. And he did that for 10 amazing yeah. years. And, and, and then when he left the organization, well, unfortunately, the people there, you got new people. And, and this wasn't something that they were fully invested in. And so it just kind of fell by the wayside. So go, go, you want to say something, Roy? Yeah. So you've mentioned Buck O'Neill many times now. Um, he was instrumental in the founding of the Negro League Museum. Um, I'm 40 years old, so I only was aware of Buck O'Neill in his, you know, in his twilight years. Oh, yeah. But I, I knew of him as an ambassador of, yeah. you know, like a like a, a connection to the past in a way. Uh, but he was a great player in his own time. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about him and and how influential he was in getting the museum started? But yeah, there would be no museum had it not been for Buck O'Neill. And I say that with no disrespect to anyone who had a hand and a role in helping build this great museum. But I affectionately call the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum the house That's that Buck, Buck built. Yeah, in New York, of course, you had the house that Ruth built. In Kansas City, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is the house that Buck built. It would not have happened without his tireless leadership, his passion, his charisma, to want to make sure that those who had played in these leagues, in these leagues, would never be forgotten. And, and Buck came to Kansas City in 1938. He started his, his Negro League career in Memphis in 1937 with the Memphis Red Sox. And he was sent here to Kansas City. J.O. Wilkinson orchestrated a move to bring old Buck to Kansas City. And man, Buck was here from 1938 until he died at age 94 in 2006. And he loved Kansas City, and Kansas City loved him. He says when he came to Kansas City, he said, I knew I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe. Kansas City was jumping, man. And, and 18th and Vine, where the museum was, was that epicenter of black life in Kansas City. So all the great jazz stars and all the entertainment was here. And he was a part of that. But he was a great first baseman for the Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah, great defensive first baseman. Lifetime 288 hitter. Won a batting title in the Negro Leagues. A great, eventually, player manager. And then, of course, he would lead the Negro Leagues to become a scout for the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. And as a scout, he is credited with having signed Hall of Famers Ernie Banks. Yeah. Uh, Lou Brock. And most recently, Hall of Famer Lee Arthur Smith. And, and hopefully a future Hall of Famer and a guy who also spent some time out there in your neck of the woods, Joe Carter. Joe. Yeah, Buck signed Joe Carter. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he signed that, Joe Carter. That is, that is amazing. I want to hear of course, he, would become, he would become the major's first African-American coach in baseball history. Okay with the Chicago Cubs in 1962. Before we go on to more baseball, I want to hear about, so you're, it's, it, the museum is connected to the Jazz Museum. So. Yeah, right across the hall from us. I'm going to need two days in KC. <laughs> a, a full day with the Negro League Museum and then a full day in the Jazz Museum. We uh, it just, I'm not a big jazz guy. I, I you know, I, I, but I love jazz music in, in the, I love the history of music. I love 
you know, I, I just love the history of Americana and, and, and nothing speaks to me more than jazz music. You know what I mean? The, the, the soul, I kind of contradicted myself there, but just, I want to hear a little bit about the jazz museum as well. Is it same price, different price? Do you, well, um, there, there's an admission for both, but you can also buy a combination ticket that allows you to see both museums. And sometimes I think fellas, people walk in and say, Oh, that's odd. A Negro Leagues Museum and a jazz museum in the same complex. But it really isn't. See, baseball and jazz went hand in hand. And even when you walk through the Negro Leagues Museum, you'll see these snippets of the connection between the two. So, for instance, Lionel Hampton was a devout monarch fan. Yeah, vibraphone and Lionel Hampton. He loved the Kansas City Monarch. So much so that Buck O'Neill would put Hamp in a monarch uniform and he'd sit on the bench and serve as an honorary coach. There are images of Lena Horne throwing out the first pitch at an all-star game. The great jazz artist Cab Calloway had his own semi-pro black baseball team. So did Louis Armstrong. Yeah. And so I tell people all the time, all the jazz musicians wanted to be baseball players. And all the, all the baseball <laughs> players wanted to be jazz musicians. So it was only fitting that they would come together here at historic 18th and Vine, this cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball intersected. Because a jazz musician could get a gig in Kansas City when they couldn't get a gig anywhere, anywhere else. else. Because all the restaurants had live music. All the hotel music had live music. And the jazz clubs galore. One of my favorite Buck O'Neill stories. The Monarchs had played a game here on a Saturday. And they said everybody's going to go home and get dressed, get cleaned up, get dressed. They're going to meet here at Historic 18th and Vine at a nightclub called the Subway. Well, it was called the Subway because the club was literally the Meat Street level. <laughs> and so Buck says, they're all in the club, the Monarchs are, all sitting around the table, sipping on a little tea. When Ed walks, a kid got a horn over his shoulder he wants to blow. Everybody says, let him blow. Well, Buck said, this kid gets up on the stage and he starts making some noises out of this horn that they've never heard before. <laughs> But you had to pay attention. That kid was 17-year-old Charlie Yardbird Parker, who went to high school right up the hill from where the museum is, Lincoln High School. That's the kind of star power that was Negro League baseball. Yeah. So by day, the jazz musicians would come out and watch them do their thing. And by night, they were going to the club to watch them do their thing. And so it created a very close-knit group. And as you probably know, they were traveling what they called the Chitlin Circuit. So they were mapping out routes where they had places to stay and places to eat. But they supported and admired what each other's, you know, craft was. So that that's interesting. As they traveled from city to city, they stayed in black-owned hotels. They ate in black-owned restaurants, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I guess they were, yeah. Or, or else you were going to have to stay with a black family 
when you went. And so the bigger cities, they didn't have the issues. It was really when they were moving around the country, going into these smaller towns, where, where they would go into a town and they could fill up the ballpark, yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just yeah. cheered them, or not have a place to stay. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services. But as I tell my young audience, and I think this message is even more important today, they never allow that social adversity to kill their love of the game. So if I've got to sleep on the bus, and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, then so be it. I'm going to keep playing ball. Yeah. And that's the prevailing spirit that you feel when you walk through the Negro League Baseball Museum. This is not a woe is mine kind of story. Right, right. These athletes never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you? I create my own. <laughs> well, and, and so, the, you know, just like today, and I, and I caught the whole hour of your town hall uh, the other day, you know, they're celebrated on the field, but in public life, they're, they're not. They're not. And they're treated completely different. We we still have work to do in our society, particularly as it relates to race relations in this country. And and that's one of the reasons that we work so hard to get our young kids into this museum. And as you can well imagine, guys, for the children that come into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, this is their first real introduction to what a segregated society was like. And they can't even fathom that this country operated that way once upon a time. And to a child that walks through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, they summarize segregation quite simply. That was dumb. And they're right. It was dumb. (laughs) It was dumb. It is very simple. Um, You know, and I think, I'm sure every generation says this, but I, I do. We have made strides as a, as a country and a culture. We're there. There will always be a struggle, but I particularly feel that there could be some changes in in our culture. I work for a university, Bob, and in, in, in our university, and the young people today are are very sensitive to people of different uh, sexual orientation. Uh, their um, how they want to choose to call themselves. Um, and I think that's going to fold over into treating other people of colors of different races the same. Yeah. Like people don't well, see the color. They, you know, they don't see it. Kids don't see color. Kids don't see color. They see other kids. But then they grow into a world where we teach them to hate. Yeah. Hate is a learned behavior. None of us are born into this world hating another human being. Yeah. And the innocence of a child is something that I think we should all draw from. Because they can see other kids. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what we hope through a museum like this, which is a social justice museum, it is a civil rights museum. It is just seen through the lens of baseball that we can help create the respect, the tolerance that we need so that we can learn to embrace our differences. We have a tendency in our country to run away from differences. Yeah. What we find, though, through sports in particular, is that we have far more in common than we do differences. Yeah. But we shouldn't be running from our differences. 
We should be embracing our differences because those are the things that make us unique. And, and so we hope that a museum like this one, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, can be part of the continued discussion, can be part of the solution to helping with race relations right. in our country. Uh, again, and and I don't know if we're going to change people's hearts. You know, if you hate somebody, you likely don't even know why you hate them. You right. just hate them. Right. You know, and, and, and hate eats you up on the inside. That's what old Buck used to say. It's so much easier to love than it is to hate. Man, if you're walking around mad all the time, it wears you out. Yeah. It actually wears you. It mentally, physically, emotionally drains you to have that kind of hate in your heart for somebody you don't even know. Yeah, you don't even yeah. know why you're hating them. You right. just hate them. So right. I may not rid you of that. But what we are seeing through these efforts, and particularly as it relates to a multitude of young people who are engaged in this process, who are part of these protests, is that there is this determination to change the systems that allow people who are in power or who have authority to abuse that power without any repercussions. Right. And so fundamentally, you, th you have to believe that for those who do abuse that power, if we start holding them accountable and penalizing them the way that normal citizens are, then you'll squelch some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. May not change their heart. You're right. We'll stop them from doing some of these things that have been happening well before we knew anything about George Floyd. Absolutely. And then the education that you get from going to the museum puts that seed in that young heart and, and maybe it carries it, for, you know, away from what they're being taught at home and it carries into their real life. And they're just, we see each other as just other human beings. Um, well, again, it, it's ludicrous to think that one's color of skin could dictate whether or not they could play baseball. Right. Yeah. And one of my favorite posters in the museum says 440 feet is 440 feet, no matter what color your skin is. <laughs> so when, so when, so now we talked about the ball players. We talked about the league. Um, nobody talks about the umpires. Um, the umpires, the Negro leagues. The you know the who was the I don't even know who the first black umpire was in in the major leagues. Emmett Ashford. Okay. Yeah, Emmett Ashford, who came, I believe, through the PCL. So he probably did some games in San Diego. Who was the first? But you know, I got to know the late great Bob Motley, who was the last surviving umpire from the Negro League. And he is the only umpire to ever throw my friend Buck O'Neill out of a game in Buck's nearly 70 years in baseball. And it was over a disputed infield fly. And, and apparently old Buck said the magic word and Bob rung him up. And, and, and that night, they had to sleep in the same bed together because there weren't enough hotel rooms to go around and Buck O'Neill in vintage Buck fashion says, I turned my back to that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that because I always think of Buck O'Neill being this like this gentle, soft spoken, yeah, like yeah, the kindest yeah. guy. And, and apparently that day, Bob must have missed his infield fly call. <laughs> and Buck said all the magic words. But now Bob Motley and Buck O'Neill were lifelong friends. Bob Motley was one of the founding members 
of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And before he passed away a couple years ago, we installed a statue. Well, he passed before the statue was installed, but he knew that we were installing the statue of him. And so now the umpire okay. is on the field of legends. He has a wonderful book that he co-wrote with his son, Byron, who lives out in Los Angeles. And the book is called Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars. It's the first ever book that is written about the legal things from the umpire's perspective. And man, it is a great read. See, a lot of people didn't know that the umpires actually rode the bus with one of the teams. So you can imagine if you made a bad call and you got yep. to ride the bus with these guys. And so he told me that he always sat at the very rear of the bus <laughs> and he slept with his mask in his hand Ow. because he didn't know if he was going to have to come oh. up swinging. There were many near altercations uh, on that bus. That's so funny. You know, Bob, my, uh, my, my, my brother lives in Tennessee outside of Nashville. And, uh, you know, for his part-time job, he's, he he uh, umpires. So he umpires high school baseball. He umpires high school softball. But he also works at the local Lowe's. So, you know, he'll be working at the Lowe's. And, you know, Bob's you know Bob's son got a bad call last night. And you know, he'd walk into the, you know, he'd walk into Lowe's and like, you know, hey, hey, Robert, got a little out of hand last night. I apologize. Because not only is he he's the umpire to your son's ball game, but he's selling the lumber to your company. Exactly. So it's, you know, and it's a small enough town in Tennessee where it's like you see those guys all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, but you know, the umpires were part of the show. You know, they were flamboyant. You know, and Bob Motley was so emphatic with his out and his strike calls <laughs> and his safe calls. You know, he was part of the show. And, and and he was very proud of his role in the Negro Leagues. Who was the painter? Who's the famous painter? Because I've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Greg Kreindler. Is that who you're thinking of? Yeah. Got two. Uh, the old... We got two. We have, we have our art exhibit that's featuring Greg Kreindler now and my good friend, Kadir Nelson, who is from San Diego, who lives in L.A. Kadir Nelson, and you may have seen it. If, you're not, if you haven't seen it, you got to Google the uh, New Yorker cover. Uh, he did a piece, man, that is just so, it's so hauntingly good uh, dealing with this whole protest and the death of George Floyd. Uh, he's also got the new cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, he is amazing, but he's known for his Negro League pieces that he, he created. He has a book called We Are the Ship. And, and we're very fortunate that former San Diego Padres owner, John Morris. Okay. He's a huge Kadir Nelson fan, and he bought a number of pieces that he donated to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Uh -huh. And so Kadir and Greg Kreinler, who's our featured artist in a an exhibit that's on display here now at the museum called Black Baseball in Living Color. And so art has become an increasing way to introduce people to the Negro Leagues. And I can tell you, man, Kadir and Greg are two of the best. I So... God, I'm exhausted. You know, I mean, two minutes into this, Bob, <laughs> two minutes into this and I was exhausted. Just um, how, so how, how can we become, you know, how, how can two white privileged males be an ally in, in the movement? Hard stop. I, I don't know. Else, I don't know else how to answer that. I don't, yeah, I don't no, even know how to know engage what? that question. You're doing it now. You're doing it now. 
you know, you're using one of your platforms to talk about this history, to introduce people who may not have heard the story of the Negro Leagues. You know, you're making them in tune to this. And, and I think each of us have our ways in which we can help influence and be part of this effort. And, and, and I thank you for this opportunity that we had. I can't believe how fast time has flown by. <laughs> And, and, it's past you your know, dinner time. I know it's getting close <laughs> to ours here on the West Coast. Um, okay, so then I can't. So we've had Meredith Wills on here, and when I when I let her know that you were uh, you were coming on, she had to have us ask you because you've already you've kind of already answered it having the jazz museum right next door. Where do you get your suits? Where do you get that style? Where does it come from? <laughs> that tie is amazing, by the way. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and actually, this is only the second time that I've been in a suit since we closed the museum back in March. And, and people kind of know me for the suits and hats. And it's almost like being in uniform, in costume. Because if you go back and look at the, the photos of that era, everybody dressed. Yeah, We were a dress-up society. But with Negro Leagues, it went to a whole other level you would not see the players outside the ballpark not immaculately dressed. And so when I'm in my suit and hat, I feel like I'm part of that Negro Leagues experience. And, and so, but for the last three months, man, you know, I've been in golf shorts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm back in uniform today. I'm back in uniform for the opening of this museum today. Well, that's a beautiful thing that you got your museum back open and it's it feels like you're back to, to regular life. You know, to at least some semblance of normalcy. Yeah. And, and, and I told people, you know, it's not business as usual, but it's business. Yeah. It is business again. And there's life. People being in this place brings life to a story that brings life to a forgotten chapter of baseball and American history. And, and so, no, I am really excited. I'm, I'm ecstatic to get this museum back open again. And hopefully, slowly but surely, we'll see more patrons start to make their way here. But again, opportunities like this has helped keep the museum on top of mind for many. And in some instances, it has introduced the Negro Leagues Museum to people who did not know that there was a Negro Leagues Museum that existed. So, you know, I'd never take these opportunities for granted. You know, I try to participate almost any and every time that somebody invites me for these kinds of opportunities. Because, number one, you never know where right. your next donor is coming from. Right. Yeah, your next, right. your next porter or someone who may have a piece of memorabilia that's sitting in the house and they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know, it, it gets a chance to come maybe here to Kansas City where we will welcome it. So you just never know where those opportunities come from or may come about. And so I do. I try to extend myself and take every opportunity to participate in these kinds of programs. Well, so one of your most unlikely supporters and one of your most well-known and vocal supporters is Getty Lee of Rush. <laughs> so how did that come about? Uh, man, you know, uh, who would have thunk it? Yeah, who would have ever thunk it? And Getty was, Rush was playing a concert here in Kansas City several years ago. And Getty had a good friend. He, you know, he's, he's a big baseball fan. You can see him at Toronto Blue Jay games all the time. He still keeps score the whole nine yards. 
Well, we didn't know he was a big sports memorabilia collector as well. So he had a friend that lived here who sadly passed away a couple of years ago who said, I'm going to take you to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, like most who come here, he fell in love with the museum. After leaving, a collection of single signed Negro League player autographed baseballs come up in an auction. He decided that he would bid on them with the intent of donating them back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, he wins the bid. His office calls and says, Getty has a few baseballs he'd like to donate. (laughs) Would you all like to have them? But naturally, we say yes. But, you know, we're thinking three or four that he might have picked up somewhere. Well, it turned out to be 200. Wow. Has since donated an additional lot of 200, now giving the Negro Leagues Museum one of the largest collection of single signed Negro League player autographed baseballs anywhere in the world. And it's all due to the benevolence of one Getty Lee, uh, white Canadian rocker. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and, and man, I'm telling you, in the case, you got Hall of Famers, you got cup of coffee guys who weren't there in the Negro Leagues law, but they're all important to yeah. us. Because 99.9% of the names that are on display in what we aptly call the Getty Lee Collection, you know, yeah, 99.9% of the names in those cases, they're dead. Right. We couldn't get their signatures. Authenticated. Exactly. And, and, and then there's the novelty name like the great Charlie Pride, the country western singer Charlie Pride, who played in the Negro League. A lot of people did not know that. Yeah, before Charlie Pride became this pioneering country western music legend, he was playing in the Negro Leagues. I thought he, he I, was, I knew he yeah. played baseball. I didn't know he played in the Negro Leagues. He was a good pitcher in the Negro Leagues who made it into the Yankees organization before he hurt his arm. It was after he hurt his arm that he fell back on a pioneering country western music career some 72 million albums sold later. We should all have a fallback career like Charlie Pratt. God dang it. Wow. I but, looked up a picture. I've got some picture here that it's a Getty Lee collection. It takes up a whole wall of the museum. This is amazing. And, and not only did he donate them, he came back and dedicated them. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, guys. I knew who Rush was. Right. But I can't say I was a Rush fan. But I'm a Rush fan now. (laughs) God, Bob, it's been an honor. It has been a blessing. And it's been so much fun to to have you come on and and talk about the museum. Tell us these stories. Um, And this is the most entertaining history lesson I've ever gotten in my life. (laughs) If it's a quarter of fun at the museum, like I'm going to move to KC just to be near the museum. Hey, man, come to KC, take on this place, enjoy the best barbecue on the face of the planet. Yeah. You know, and it's a great experience. No, but we sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Thank you for being a platform to advocate on behalf of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum uh, and everything that this museum represents. So, All right. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you so much. Well, I was just born to be 
exactly what you see Today and every day I'm just me